Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, The Dancing Partner, a story by Jerome K. Jerome, first published in The Idler, March 1893, as part of a... uh, collection or novel or something called novel notes um and then separate separated out into a short story and and published in the version that we we were looking at uh in famous fantastic mysteries march 1951 um i i'm a big fan of robot stories this is almost a robot story are you a big jerome k jerome fan I, you know, uh, no, it's not that I'm not a fan of his, it's that I've read very little of his just by happenstance. It's not that I have anything against his writing, and this is an example of pretty nice writing, as yeah. far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and it, it, he, I knew him as a humorist. Um, I, I first heard about him through uh, Heinlein, who talks about uh, three men in a boat in... Um, I think it's Have Space Suit, Will Travel. And I read uh, I, I read that book, and I'm like, that Jerome K. Jerome, he sounds pretty funny. Uh, so I, I did track down the, the book of uh, Three Men in a Boat, and it is pretty funny. I note that Connie Willis is also a fan of uh, Jerome K. Jerome because she wrote a book that basically redoes the plot of uh, Three Men in a Boat as a time travel story. And uh, I also, I think I read a book of his, uh, Jerome K. Jerome's, about bicycling. Maybe maybe that's, uh, yeah, I can't remember the title of that one. But he is, I think he's known as a humorist. And there are certainly points of humor in here. Um, deliberately, I think, funny parts. But it's more of a horror story than it is a humor story, I, I think, also. I think I'm getting too old for this, Jesse. Uh, I found there was a point at which, um, I remember I took my son to see the film version of misery. Oh yeah. Which, which is a, a movie that can be thought of as really, really tense. Um, every time the, the writer character is about to be tormented more by the, the woman who has captured him. And we, you know, the scene of, Kathy Bates bringing the sledgehammer down on uh, James Kahn's uh, ankles. I mean, he's like, oh my God. Yeah. But, you know, with my son sitting there next to me and I'm thinking, what kind of an evil father am I taking this, <laughs> this youngster to see? That? But that was the movie he wanted to see. I just kept saying to myself and to him, you know, it's just a movie. It's just a movie. <laughs> and uh, that was the first time I was old enough that it was supposed to bother me and it didn't because I just didn't have that suspension of disbelief in the dancing partner. I had a similar phenomenon and that may be why I read the story differently from you. Um, the story is a frame story. Mm -hmm. Somebody starts saying, there's this story I have. It comes from the a small town in the black forest. He says, and then he tells the story of uh, these these people from could be the 18th, I guess the early 19th century. It has a lot in common with E.T.A. Hoffman's mm -hmm. uh, uh, work. Um, 
And he, the, the story is uh, really there's a, a clockmaker whose real passion is making mechanical animals that can do all kinds of things remarkably. He and his daughter go to a ball. Uh, at the ball, the daughter is young and dances. He is old and doesn't. Um, he overhears four young women complaining about the dancing partners. And ultimately, one of them says, boy, I wish I had a partner who just would just keep going all night long and you know, just just do this and stop saying all the same things again. And then what happens, of course, is that the old man who uh, or older man who makes mechanical animals quizzes his daughter on what would be the qualities of an ideal dancing partner. And then he makes one and brings this robot uh, to the next ball where the robot winds up dancing with the girl who at first suggested how wonderful it would be to have this tireless dancing partner. And he winds up getting his mechanism knocked a little bit out of gear and he dances her to death. And it's a fairly graphic death of her whirling around with blood coming down and yeah. so on and so forth. Um, I thought, even on first reading, although I've read it more than once now, I thought that the story's outcome is so telegraphed. Mm -hmm. It's so obvious what's going to happen. And I think it would have been in 1893 because it's already – way, way past uh, when Hoffman is publishing The Sandman, which has a similar sort of uh, confusion of the real, well, it uses a, an even more convincing robot. Uh, I think The Sandman is 1822, maybe, so, and a very famous story. Um, it, it's the, uh, the basis for Coppelia, a very, very famous opera. Um, so by 1893, people know the story. I was reading it as if I knew the story and I'm thinking, oh, boy, you're, you're wishing for what you shouldn't wish for. We know this isn't going to work out well. And there is no physical description, really, of the look of the, the young lady who winds up dead. Uh, I think that this is cartoonish. And I read it as a comedy the same way I'm not at all horrified by the death of Wiley e. Coyote. Mm -hmm. So... <laughs> Well, he never um, dies. Actually, that's that's uh, you know the, that's the thing about those cartoons. Is he, he's back in the next one. Uh, you, you you've got a point there, and it is true. We're told that this character dies, but you know what? She's she's just a cipher to me. Um, I get interested in how the story is told and why it gets told. But as I was saying about uh, my son and I seeing misery together, it's just a story. I guess that's part of the problem. I just it's it's so slow in the telling that I wind up having to attend to the importance of the details. And I sort of don't care about the outcome because it's clear what the outcome will be. So I wind up not reading it as a horror story. I wind up reading it as a, a sort of a comic uh, cautionary tale, which, by the way, is not the cautionary tale that uh, the editor of the reprint thinks it is. Uh, he mm -hmm. says that or she um, that you should not wish for perfection, but that's not the point. It's not that perfection is a problem. It's that you've got to watch out what you wish for. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I think that the, the way it could be read as a horror story is there's two ways, I would say. One is um, 
the, there's a young woman, and actually a set of young women, who, who wish for a dancing partner who wouldn't chat their ear off about inanities, uh, but would rather keep dancing, not mop their foreheads, right? They've got a set of expectations or desires they would want in an ideal dancing partner. Um, and so there's that. But I think there, there's another way of looking at it. Is, uh, you know, she gets what she wants and it kills her, right? Um, and it kind of, a, I mean, it's, it's mostly off screen, the, the damage done to her. But I found myself, uh, I, and I think that this is a skill of Jerome K. Jerome. The skill of him is that, you know, he has the, the, the women flee and then the men flee. And then the the people who who are dealing with what's what's seen, all all we're really left with we we're left to imagine it. So we see first blood on her blouse, and then a trail of blood following uh, the the spiraling path of the of the of the dancing the, the dancers yeah. right. And and that's that to me is, I mean I can I'm seeing it filmed in my mind, and that is. That is classic horror movie, but I think I think there's another way to read it too, and that's not just you know this is women getting what they want in a dancing partner, but rather a guyball, the, uh, the 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 mechanist, the guy who makes wonderful automatons that delight everyone. Um, the way it ends. Uh, listen to this. From that day, old uh, from that day, old Nicholas Guybel confined himself to the making of mechanical rabbits and cats that mewed and washed their faces. And that's how the story starts, right? He starts off as this uh, inventor of delightful sort of party party mechanisms, right? And now, after having created a man, and a man who could perform tasks quite wonderfully until things go wrong, um he can no longer he's like reduced he's no longer creating humans as it were he's creating you know toys again it starts off like this um in the second major paragraph but he was something more than a mere mechanic he was an artist his work was with him as a hobby almost a passion his shop was filled with all manner of strange things that never would or could be sold Things he had made for the pure love of making them. He had contrived a mechanical donkey that would trot for two hours by means of stored electricity. Uh, this is so modern. We've got these devices being made by DARPA today, right? And trot, <laughs> trot too much faster than the live article and with less need for exertion on the part of the driver. A bird that would shoot up into the air fly around and around in a circle and drop to earth at the exact spot from where it had started. This is autonomous drones, right? A skeleton that, supported by an upright iron bar, would dance a hornpipe, a life-size lady doll that could play the fiddle, and a gentleman with a hollow inside who could, this is the best part, who could smoke a pipe and drink more lager beer than any three average German students put together. Which is saying much. So we've got this sort of um, him building up from the the cute little animals that are toys into almost full fledged, you know, tools, almost almost 
robots, essentially. They do things that we want them to do. They fulfill a need other than just to delight but you know women want dancing partners they love dancing <laughs> apparently but, yeah but i i i certainly agree and uh, it's I a horror story for him is is what i'm saying as well as for the you know just the horror of what happens who's the him uh, geibel this this man oh, it's a horror story for geibel just the way it's a horror story for the guy who gets his ankles crushed in misery but I don't think it's a horror – well, certainly not a horror story for me. I noticed as you read that paragraph of the escalating capabilities of Geibel's creations that at the end when it says they could drink more – he could drink more lager beer than any three average German students put together, which is saying much, that you laughed, Jesse. Yes, yes, absolutely. I think we're set up to see this as a comedy from the very beginning. Now, you could argue that – the comic is set up so that the tragic will become more dramatic by contrast, yes. except for me, I'm just saying for me, I'm not saying what one has to say, how one has to react for me, because it's so telegraphed, because the the outcome is so obvious. Um, I don't read the beginning and think, oh, no, what? How did that happen? These were all such wonderful, cute things. I'm, in fact, reading it quite the other way. It's clear that as it gets more and more into the human realm, we're going to have something happen. And what happens is a uh, horrible accident if these were real people. But I don't think of them as real people. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm looking at it sort of from intellectual distance as well. But um, – I think I think the humor does, and I agree. It's it's pretty obvious what's going to happen. Something's going to go wrong. Um, but I think the way it it ends, just with the series of sort of like, no, this is getting that's not where she's not answering. Um, this is out of control. And I'll read a um, a near end of if I can find it of um, when when the band who's playing the music. Stop. Yeah, maybe this is it here. Meanwhile, the uh, maybe it's on the previous page. Let's just see here. Um, ah, this is a young people's house tonight, said Wenzel. So soon as they were outside, you and I will have a quiet pipe and a glass of hawk over in the counting house. And I, I'm, I want to ask you about this counting house, but uh, let's just continue for a minute. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the dancing grew more fast and furious. Little Annette loosened the screw, regulating her partner's rate of progress, and the figure flew around her swifter and swifter. So it's like almost a blender is what I'm looking at here. <laughs> With all the legs flying and the arms dipping and spinning around the room. Couple after couple dropped out, exhausted, but they only went the faster, till at length they remained dancing alone. Matter and matter became the waltz. The music lagged behind. The musicians, unable to keep the pace, ceased and sat staring. The younger guests applauded, but the older faces began to grow anxious. This is how I'm feeling. I think this is really good manipulation on the part of Jerome K. Jerome. I'm like, no, that's not good. I know what's coming, but I can't I can't help and but watch, you know? It's like one of those videos people say, you know, horrible shooting or you know, car accident. You can't help. You know what's coming, but you, you, you don't want to see it, but you have to see it, sort of thing. 
"'Hadn't you better stop, dear?' said one of the women. "'You'll make yourself so tired.' But Annette did not answer. "'I believe she's fainted,' cried out a girl, who had caught sight of her face as it was swept by. One of the men sprang forward and clutched at the figure, but its impetus threw him down onto the floor, where its steel-cased feet laid bare his cheek. Now that is horrific to me. (laughs) I'm seeing it. The thing evidently did not intend to part with its prize easily. There is a horror line I've... I mean... That oh, absolutely. Awesome I understand. I, I don't disagree. I, I'm not saying it's not horrible, that it can't be read horribly. I understand that Misery was seen by most people as a psychological thriller that kept them on the edge of their seats. <laughs> I'm just saying that's why my it's first right title, right? was, I'm just too old for this. I'm, I don't mean my chronological years. I just read this. I wound up reading this as if I'm just reading a story. It's just a movie. I understand that it's being painted with tropes of horror, but I just see it as being painted. I don't feel the horror Mm. because, in fact, I laugh at it. It it, it connects so well with so many other things. It it, it fits in perfectly with fairy tales. It fits in with the tales of Hoffman. By the way, I checked that it's 1816 for the Sandman. it fits in, in fact, with with works that come later, um, like Asimov's Robots series. You know, in in I Robot, mm-hmm. uh, Susan Calvin, the robo psychologist, uh, is is she's told by someone that these robots with their positronic brains are exactly like human beings, and she says, no. They are not because the robots are essentially decent. That is, they have to follow rules that make them not hurt people. Robots are not like people because they're essentially decent. Here, the the girl who first suggests the idea, the one we finally come to know is named Annette, and that's the only time her name comes up. Why, with a phonograph inside him to grind out all the stock remarks, you would not be able to tell him from a real man, said the girl who had first suggested the idea. Oh, yes, you would, said the thin girl. He would be so much nicer. (laughs) Right. And of course, as soon as you see that, you know, he's not going to be nicer. Any any human being who prefers a robot is liable to have some kind of comeuppance at least in standard stories. Uh, and that was certainly true up to and through the robot stories. Some kind of comeuppance. Susan Calvin's comeuppance, in a sense, is that she never actually has a relationship with a real human being. Uh, she, she winds up always being a handmaiden to the robots. And, and here, I think that that Geibel, I, I don't think that he's been... reduced I think he has restrained himself yes he has he has it's it's not that they all blamed him right in fact she's the one who turned it up so so high it's almost her her mistake Um, yeah and yet we also see you know him leaving uh, to go have a smoke and and let the young people play this out um, it's uh, it's a very curious move, and I'm very interested to to think of what what the impl- why is it the counting house? 
I, I'll get back to that in a second because I do think that's important. But I, I believe in getting to that question, Jesse, you're asking something that for me is a more profound issue in this story. I think it's easy in this story to see the, that the moral is be careful what you wish for. Um, you could even, if you like, beware of unintended consequences if you're sufficiently skillful the way Geibel is. Mm-hmm. But I think that what this story projects is a fundamental distinction between the generations. Geibel apparently is alone. It's, it's Geibel and his daughter. And the two balls they go to are given by men who have families. The first ball they go to is for the first birthday of a child. Right. So there's a wife and a, and a child there, but there's a ball for the young people. And the second one we go to, I think, is for a marriage. Um, so th- there's relations going on for the people who give the dances and dances are, a, are about a coming together, a, a matching of activities that happens in in courtship, that happens in romantic relationships, whereas the relationship between the generations is different. The one we see best is Geibel having his daughter demonstrate to him the steps necessary so he can learn them and build them into the into the machine that he builds. So it's not a real collateral relationship. When the collateral relationships are going on, the old men, older, withdraw to have a smoke and a glass of wine. When the robot goes awry, though the young, two young men, everybody's chaotic, we're told. They just, you know, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And two young men lunge at him sort of in an uncoordinated way. And so the power of the robot's motion flings them away and they are hurt. And so first the women run out of the room, the young women, and then the men run out of the room, meaning they have all abandoned Annette. Mm-hmm. They've all abandoned Annette. The young look like they're going through a dance trying to get together with each other. But at least as this story presents it, the young are unreliable. But once they find the old men in the counting house, the old men come in. There were two young men. Now there are two old men. The two young men were utterly ineffective. The two old men are completely effective. But they came too late. And the reason they came too late is either because the young were too foolish to call them in a timely way, which is true, or because they were more interested in having some sedentary pleasure of their own than having to keep guard over the young people, which is also true. So there's a huge generational difference. A counting house is a place for the administrative Uh, offices of some kind of enterprise. So a factory will have a counting house. It's often a separate uh, structure because you want to be able to lock it up without having to lock the whole of the the administrative offices. The count in the word count in counting house Mm -hmm. comes from the same root as accounts. That's where you keep accounts. Um, 
and and we see this in fairy tales. The king is in the counting house counting out his money. Um, mm-hmm. The queen is in the parlor eating bread and honey. Along came the black, right? So uh, the counting house is this place. Now, the guy who's held the second ball is an industrialist. In fact, we're told explicitly that all of this is going on in Wurtwangen. Well, Wurtwangen is, in fact, a, a, a very small city, but it is in, right by the Black Forest, as we're told in the story. And it's, it has two great fame, uh, claims to fame. One is that there's a little tiny river that runs through it and almost immediately joins another little tiny river. And where those two join is considered to be the uh, source of the Danube. Da, 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 da. Right. The most famous waltz of all starts there. The second claim to fame is that Furtwangen was the home of an an industry of making the most elegant, complicated and sophisticated mechanical clocks. The kind that came out on the hour and the cat would mew and wipe down his whiskers. The the rooster would come out and would sing with the voice of a rooster. In fact, I've read that there are collectors today. These clocks are now rare who love them because each time you get one of these clocks, the thing that makes the noise makes the actual noise of that particular creature. Mm. So Furtwangen is famous for, in fact, doing just this, making an aesthetic quasi-imitation. But, you know, clockwork is not life. And that's what this is saying. If the old want to indulge only in clockwork, the clock will run out. And they will be too late, whether their fault because they were counting all their money from what they've invented, from what they've done, from being industrialists, they will be too late because the world is too much with us late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers, right? They'll be too late because they're distracted or they'll be too late because the young are too foolish to ask for their help and the young have not yet learned how to control these mechanisms, not even how to coordinate their own actions. Yeah. You know, I, I, I note that word grind <laughs> comes comes in a couple of times. One, it comes in um, with the phonograph, which I think puts us pretty late into the 19th century, even if the it feels like it's a, um, a early, you know, late 17th, early 18th, or late 18th century story with all the... Oh, yeah, the 1893 story is aware of the technology. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 it's a retelling of uh, sort of a of a Brothers Grimm story uh, with m- much more modern technology, right? Uh, I want to yes. read this part because it has the word grind, but it also has this very curious sort of humor with regard to Geibel and his his inspiration, right? Um, and I, I was reading the 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 I was going to say the framing story for this, but really just the the outer material. And now I'm struck by what I was reading there, um, which is the novel notes. Um, and in one of those, it said something to the effect of, um, uh, "Well, if we're going to write a novel for women, we need to know what women want." And so they all all the people at the meeting wrote letters to all their women relations and asked them what 
they thought was a suitable subject for a woman's novel. And, of course, they dismissed their answers in a very comedic way. But I want to read this and and see see what you think of it, because I I find it striking now. Why would the phonograph inside him to grind out all the stock remarks? You would not be able to tell him from a real man, said the girl who had first suggested the idea. Oh, yes, you would, said the thin girl. He would be so much nicer. And you you said that point as well. But I want to get to this point. Old Geibel had laid down his paper and was listening with both both his ears on... One on one of the girls glancing in his direction, however, uh, he hurriedly hid himself behind it. So I think it's so striking that like he's like, oh my, this is interesting, and he lays down his paper, presumably a newspaper. Um, and then when he sees that the girls are watching him, that he's watching them, listening, but both his ears, of course, a ridiculous statement. Everybody listens with both their ears, you know, keep one eye on that. It's it's designed to be funny. And then he hurriedly hides himself again behind the paper. It's as if he, he wants to get what they really want, not what they say they want. And yeah. he gives them exactly what they want, except I notice that one of the things that makes this the horror so much capped for me is right at the end when... When the girl has fainted, uh, maybe she's dead by this point. Um, it, it the robot or the automaton keeps on talking. It says, and everlastingly it talked in that thin, ghostly voice, repeating over and over the same formula: "How charming you are looking tonight! What a lovely day it has been! Oh, don't be so cruel! I could go on dancing forever with you. Have you had supper?" <laughs> Well, my guess is she hasn't, and neither will the robot. But if you ask the robot, there's always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep.